the book of Numbers. This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery in Egypt. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, and he entered into a covenant with them there. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. So the book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they head out into the wilderness on their way to the land that God promised Abraham. Now, the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of their journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Paran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the Promised Land. Now, the first part opens with a census where the people are numbered. That's where the book gets its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. So the tabernacle was to be at the center, and then around that, the priests and the Levites, and then around them, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with Judah at their head. Now, this was all an elaborate symbol about how God's holy presence was at the center of their existence as a people. This is all followed by a whole series of laws that develop the purity laws from the book of Leviticus. If God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness. In chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence lifts from the tabernacle and guides Israel away from Sinai out into the wilderness. And immediately things go terribly wrong. So in chapter 11, the people start complaining about their hunger and thirst and how they want to go back to Egypt. And then in chapter 12, Moses' own brother and sister begin opposing and bad-mouthing him in front of all of the people. This trip is not off to a good start. Well, if you have been with us over the last couple uh, weeks, that was a good summary. They said in two minutes, but I took like Drew and I, 30 minutes times 7, so I guess we need to get a little more briefer. But that has been the journey we've been at in Numbers, and that has brought us to this wilderness you see behind us. This is the location of our scene today. So thanks for joining us as we move to the wilderness of Paran. Again, if you're watching online, I know for all of us here, that journey could also be that of the Bengals, right? They've been wandering for many, many years. We're hoping for the promised land, right? So can I get a who day? Here we go. Who day? All right. That's, uh, that's our prayer for, uh, for the Bengals today. So we're hoping that the wilderness experience is over and that we are traveling to the promised land. And God is a good God, and he knows that the lessons we need in this new wilderness, the wilderness of testing, is that God will put us in the exact same situation that we were in a year ago or three years ago to see if we'll learn the lesson. You ever notice that uh, life can rhyme? You're having the same fight with your spouse that you had like six weeks ago, the same battle with your son or daughter, or the same sickness issue comes up a third time or fourth time in your life. We're going to see that in the book of Numbers, that God will have them wander around and around to the same circumstance again. Food comes up again, just like it did in Exodus, because it's a test. Will you trust me this time? Will you overcome the rumble of the grumble with an attitude of gratitude? Or does he have to pull out the whistle and go, one more lap around the wilderness, guys. Come back to almost an identical circumstance. Will you trust me this time? I don't think I really All right, all right. Now, one more lap around the wilderness. And that's why this is called the wilderness of testing. Because when God puts us in the testing wilderness, he wants us to know if we will trust him and approach this new wilderness, this new circumstance, different from last time, 
with an attitude of gratitude. What we're going to see today is something that they struggled with, is something we struggle with. We grow deaf to the rumble of the grumble. And that's why God takes us so seriously. And I'll give you four reasons, right out of the text, that we should take grumbling seriously. So we can flourish, and so that we can align our hearts to trusting in God, whatever wilderness we're in. So let's start with our first uh, idea. Why should we take grumbling seriously? Right out of the bat, we're going to find that God takes grumbling very seriously. Because grumbling is like an unsent thank you card. It's like not telling God thanks for everything he's done. And unexpressed gratitude actually communicates not neutrality, but unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. And when we grumble or don't say thanks to God, don't praise God, it angers God because we're not being grateful to him and there's something in us that's going to destroy us. Let me show you how it begins. And when the people complained, they murmured and complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it. He does hear when we grumble and complain. And his anger was aroused. We're just like, yeah, you know, it's all in good fun. It's just, you know, I'm kind of good at it. You know, practice makes perfect. I'm good at grumbling. Why is God so displeased about this? Why is he, when he hears it, his anger aroused? That's kind of like overkill, isn't it? Well, how do you feel when you do something and somebody doesn't say thanks? Or your kids, you're like, thinking to yourself, you know, kids got a gift, say thanks, say thanks, right? You're prompting it, right? Say thanks! Because you know that unexpressed gratitude or grumbling and complaining actually communicates ingratitude. And did you know that every sin, every rebellion in the Bible, so pick your top ten list of bad things to do, you can trace the tributaries back to two things the Bible talks about are the source of all sin. Pride and ungratefulness. The reason God is so angry at this and so deals with this so strongly is, one, he's been training for two years, right? Two years of training and they're first, you know, shot out of the gate and it's grumbling and complaining. But in the book of Romans, it tells us how serious God takes gratitude. He goes on to say, the wrath of God is revealed. Well, that sounds serious. The judgment of God, the righteous justice of God, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So all ungodliness comes from where? He goes on to explain when we suppress the evidence God reveals to us. But look how he ends that section. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And thank you for the breath in my lungs. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my opportunities. Thank you for my skills. No, they didn't glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful. Of all the sins he could have put in there, he said... The root of that is a lack of thankfulness. And he explains it. When you're not thankful, and when you do not acknowledge God for what he's done, you become futile in your own thoughts, and you develop a foolish heart that's darkened. Like, wow. I mean, what, what if you gave the same weight to expressing gratitude to God and others as you do to do not murder? Right? If I say to you, hey, are you pretty good at you know, you know, being thankful to your spouse? I'm not really good at it. You know, it's kind of something I struggle with. But if I said to you, how good are you at not murdering your spouse? You know, I'm not really good at it. You know, I try and only do it once a week, once a month. You know, the knife only goes in so deep. You see, that's ridiculous. But we don't think thankfulness and gratitude is that serious. 
we have improperly weighed the law. And that's why God is so aroused in his anger by their, their complaining. And he, you really get to see this in the second metaphor here, which is the metaphor of fire. The metaphor of fire is that God is going to send fire to burn against this. You're like, man, that's kind of overkill. But grumbling is a fire. Remember, there's a fire in the middle of the pillar we learned about in the first couple chapters. And that fire is going to jump out into the outskirts of the camp. It's a controlled burn. Look what happens. So, the fire of the Lord burned against them, hearing this, this grumbling. And it consumed some of the outskirts, notice it's the outskirts of the camp. So the people cried out to the Lord, oh my goodness! And Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Well, again, I think this is, wow, this just seems like an overkill. Fire, fire of the Lord. Thank goodness Moses stepped in and the fire would have continued burning. Why does he only burn the outskirts of the camp? Well, if you talk to firefighters, they will tell you sometimes that there's a big forest fire going on that it cannot be controlled, they can't dump enough water on it. So you see firefighters running out toward that section with matches. No, no, you need a hose. <laughs> now, they brought matches. And so they start a fire over here, burning this direction, to get to the fire that's here. And it's called a controlled burn, where you burn so the fire will burn itself out. And God knows that unthankfulness, if he doesn't deal with it severely, with a controlled burn, it will actually contaminate the whole, the whole group. So he burns on the outside of the camp to show this is serious. We need to deal with this now because it's going to contaminate our entire journey into the promised land. I don't know how many of you like uh, literature, but one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis is actually The Great Divorce. And if you've never read The Great Divorce, uh, it has got a great, it's a real goofy book in that it's a, a bunch of people from hell on a bus ride to heaven. When they arrive in heaven, heaven is so real that they can't even step on the grass because they're kind of ghostly because they've given themselves over to, to lust or to grumbling or to whatever their idol is. And one of my favorite characters is this, this older woman who's just become a grumbler. And C.S. Lewis clearly knows some people in his life because he writes after these people. And the angel says, hey, isn't it a great day? Well, it could be better. Could be hotter. Could be cooler. Hey, I heard your family came over recently. Well, yeah, but they didn't stay very long. And they didn't help out while they were there. And they didn't volunteer to do the dishes. And they don't come over as often as they need to. And whatever subject you bring up, there's always some reason why it's not quite right and not quite nice and not quite enough. And at one point, the angel says, she and the grumble were distinct, but she's given herself over to the hellishness of the grumble that it's become her and she cannot see the difference between her and the grumble. And the grumble goes on for eternity. And that's what Romans is talking about and why Numbers takes it so seriously. When you give yourself over to something... You eventually become that thing, and your mind is futile, and your heart is darkened. You now can't even distinguish between you and your bad habits or the grumble. And that's why God takes us so seriously. That's why there's this control burn going on. We've got to take care of this. We've got to burn this up. We've got to deal with it. The third metaphor it's used, we alluded to in the video as well as in Neil's bridging earlier, is that uh, grumbling is like a garlic. They mention a garlic specifically in the text. It's like a garlic. Grumbling causes intense cravings. That's the word he's going to use. 
and grumbling distorts your memories. And that's what idolatry is. When you give yourself over to something, whatever that something is will eventually not be enough. You give yourself over to power, it's more important to you than God. Some power is nice, but you know what be even better? A little bit more. Money is really nice, but you put that over God, and you know it's even better than money? A little bit more. People's acceptance is great. And if that becomes your God, you know it's better than a little people liking you? A lot of people liking you. And it becomes an intense craving that you're never satisfied because you always grumble there's not enough. So all these comes directly out of the text. Let me show you this. So the mixed multitude, and the mixed multitude means a group of Gentiles and uh, Jewish people. Because remember, when they left Egypt, it wasn't just the Jewish people that left. Many Egyptians said, I want to go with that God. So there's Jews and Gentiles represented here in the mixed multitude. And they were the ones that yielded to intense craving. I'm not just hungry, I have to have it. And it's intense craving. It's insatiable craving. That's what happens when you give yourself over to an idol. It becomes an intense, insatiable craving. So the children of Israel wept again. Again? Yes, one more lap around the wilderness. This is the exact thing that happened in Exodus. They had a food problem. They complained. God said, just trust me next time. We're in the exact same circumstance. One more lap. Are they trusting? No. They wept again. They complained again. And they said, who's going to give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember the good old days. Remember them? We remember the good old days in Egypt, they say. We remember the fish. Oh, the fish. I remember sitting back with the wife and eating some fish. and Oh, and some cucumbers and melons and garlic and leeks and onions. I remember we ate freely in Egypt after a nice fun day of getting whipped on the back by the Egyptians. It's great to have a little melon. After that day of them throwing our kids in the Nile River. Oh, you remember those days? Those are good times. It was just great to eat a garlic at the end of the day. And you already see it, right? You see they've distorted their memories. They remember eating freely. Now, part of that's because the mixed multitude. They're alluding to both the Egyptians and the, and the Jewish people here. But still, it's distorted their memories. We remember. No, you don't. It's distorted their memories. And it's become an intense craving that nothing can satisfy. The cucumbers, the melons, the garlics, and now having not got it's not just we're hungry, it's we can't live without this. And because we're not getting it, a little bit more, I love this line, verse 6, our whole being is dried up. You see this in your kids or grandkids, don't you? But it's in your heart and mind, too. Oh, my goodness. It's so unfair. I show them just everything. I'm against. I can't even live without this. My whole being is dried up. Except for this manna before our eyes. Except for the thing God's actually providing. That doesn't count. So here's some pictures of actual fish and cucumbers and the leeks and onion field. And in one sense, it was much more luscious in Egypt. That's just true. It's green. It's got a Nile. God led them to wilderness because in wilderness, there's plenty to complain about. And God wants to bring up your grumbling, complaining attitudes so we can deal with them. 
But he also wants us to realize that whatever you give yourself over to that's not daily bread from God, it will never satisfy it. It will become an intense craving that will never bring you joy because it will never be enough. And like Moses drops in here, well, let's talk about that thing they discounted, that, that manna from God. He says, let's not forget you were in slavery and God brought you out of slavery and he brought you through the Red Sea and then he's teaching us daily how to trust him for daily bread. And the manna was a symbol of that. Now this manna was like a coriander seed and its color was a color of bedulum. And the people went about and they would gather it every day, just enough for that day, except on Sabbath, because God wanted to teach you how to trust in him every day. And they would grind it on millstones or beat it on the mortar. They'd cook it in pans. They made cakes of it. Its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. It's like, it's like bread. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna would also fall with it. So what is coriander seed and what is uh, bedlium? Well, if you look here on the, on the screen, you will see it almost looks like little pods, like the size of popcorn, made a little bit bigger. That's what manna size would look like, according to Moses. Or think of it like uh, chicken piccata. I made some chicken piccata the other day. And so the piccata, little seeds that you might have on chicken piccata is up there. But the color was the color of bedlium, which is on the other side. So it's like these little yellowish, translucent popcorn seeds that every day God gave you enough. Now listen, I'd be the first to complain even during COVID. Like, are we still eating the same 20 things? Right? You do it, I do it. We discount what God has provided, thanking him, praising him, blessing him. And we meditate and stare at all the things he hasn't provided. The garlic. What happens is that garlic attitude, well, it stinks. And it contaminates us. And it contaminates everyone around us. My dad was a school teacher, and he uh, one day was at school. He taught sixth grade. And one day he's got this sixth grade kid who opens up his lunchbox. He's like, hey, uh, John, what are you having today? He opens up, he's like, a garlic like, it's all he had in there was a garlic. Like, you and I might eat meat and apple. He's chewing on his garlic. <laughs> he just chewed up this garlic for lunch. Well, he came back, and apparently, you know, he has a really well-developed perspiration system because he came back uh, for the rest of the afternoon, and everybody in the class, all the six girls, like, ew, John smelled like garlic, oh! And so my dad has to place him by the, kind of move his desk over by the window and open the window up to kind of, you know, get the garlic smell out, right? Because the garlic saturated everything about him. He smelled of garlic. He reeked of garlic. Everyone around him could smell the garlic. It becomes an intense craving. You don't even realize that you're complaining. In the Arctic, there's a tradition that the Eskimos use to kill wolves. They use their intense cravings against them. They will take a knife and dip it in blood and then freeze it. And dip it in blood and freeze it. And they'll do it over and over again until the blood covers the blade. And then they will stick the blade handle side down in the snow and they'll go back to their tent or go back into their igloo. And that wolf will come out. They have to go find it or hunt it. It will come out and it will begin to lick the blade. And it won't feel any pain. But as it continues to lick it, it will eventually lick away all of the blood. And it will begin to cut its own tongue. And the intense craving will end up killing it and it will bleed itself to death. And that's how idols work. It promises something that tastes good. We don't even realize when we begin to hurt ourselves... 
And eventually we bleed ourselves to death with those intense cravings because we place something in the place of God. I was talking to my buddy Mike, who's recently chatting with a couple in our church who just realized as they looked at their life, they had become just complaining too much and grumbling too much and not any margin in their life and their spiritual life wasn't what they wanted it to be. And I came across an article about a, um, uh, a group of people who live in this island in the Mediterranean who have a, the largest, longest lifespan of anyone in the world right now. And what are the habits they had? And every night they gather together family and friends. Every night they family and friends together. And every night they tell stories and share what they're grateful for. As a community, they go to church as a community every week together. They make enough, but not too much. If they make too much, they give the rest away. They have margin in their life. So it's time to enjoy and to laugh. And as this couple was reflecting on that, they just said, you know what, we have got... Literally, these are the people who live today who are living the longest. We need to live with some of these habits of daily bread, margin, trusting in God, not living, complaining, and living in gratitude all the time. It's been about six months now, and they said the changes we've made have us so much more happy with each other, with God, and with life. Because that garlic of intense craving and distortion of memories isn't around them all the time. It's not around you and I all the time. So, it's a garlic. We want to try and recognize that because what God is trying to teach you and I through manna is how to trust him daily. Remember, this started back in Exodus. Quick reminder where we are in the Bible. We have Abraham. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob who was a wrestler. He wrestled with God. It became Israel. His number is 12 because he has 12 sons. Israel's 12 sons. And then Joseph, one of those sons... Gets sold off to slavery in Egypt. The people then get moved to Egypt. That's how we end up in Egypt. And then the people have just been exited out of Egypt, and here we are. We are here. And here's what God said back in Exodus. Now, the Lord said to Moses, I want to rain down bread from heaven, manna from heaven. So the manna we're talking about here in Numbers. For you. So this is bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough just for that day. I want you to learn how to trust me. And again, they've had generational poverty, generational enslavement. They don't know anybody for, from great-grandma to great-great-great-grandma who's ever been free, who's ever made a free decision in their life. So we can give them a little bit of grace. So God's teaching them, training them how to make free decisions and trust him. Now Jesus will show up in the New Testament and say, everything about the book of Numbers, everything about the manna was really about me. I was the final manna. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses, he didn't give you bread from heaven. You're like, yeah, he did. Well, not the true bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Well, what is the true bread from heaven? I'll take some of that. It is a he. Look at that. For the true bread of heaven from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, well, he's trying to teach the book of Numbers is what he's trying to teach you and I how you and I can learn how to trust Jesus as our daily bread, to thank him daily. What does he say in the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus wants to be your daily bread. So when you're craving garlic, whatever your garlic is, whatever your idol is, let's put your garlic subordinate to his daily bread. And lastly, he mentions, I'll use the metaphor of cancer. 
that grumbling, the reason it's so serious is because it's a contagion that spreads in you, it spreads in families, it spreads in the people around you, and God just gives such practical advice on how to deal with this cancer. Before it destroys your faith, your family, or even your future friendships. Here's how the passage unfolds. Moses has been hearing the people grumbling. He's not grumbling yet. He heard the people weeping throughout their families. So it's not just the people who did it. Now their families are grumbling. Mom's unhappy. The whole family's unhappy. Dad's unhappy. The whole family's unhappy. So now it's, 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 it's the people grumbled. It's passed on to Moses. It's now passed on to the families. Everyone then shows up to the doorpost. When they come to the door of the tabernacle, they show up to the door of the tent. And the anger of the Lord was aroused. It was aroused here. Now it's greatly aroused. Now Moses also is displeased. <laughs> Oh my goodness, i got to put up with this. How am I going to handle this? Two million people, uh, what a hassle. So Moses gets discouraged. Look what Moses says to the Lord. Why have you, talking to God, afflicted your servant? He's accusing God now of afflicting him. It's spreading, right? This cancer spreading. Why have I not found favor in your sight? Am I doing a bad job? See, when you're ungrateful, when you don't thank others, when you don't encourage other people, it actually makes everyone feel bad and feel down and wonder what's going on. It just begins to spread. Why, did you, why have you laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? I love this metaphor. Did I beget them that I sh- you should say to me, carry them around in your bosom? Do I have any milk they're going to provide for these nursing babies? No. You said you bring us to a land that you swore to our fathers. So now the cancer spread from the people to the families to Moses. And God is just so gracious and so kind. And even in the midst of you know, his harsh discipline, we see compassion and good advice. Three things to deal with the cancer he gives to Moses. Number one, it's hard to be grateful when you're burned out. You can have all the willpower you are, but if you have no margin in your life, if you know nobody carry the burdens with you, it's hard to be grateful when you're burned out. And one more lap around the wilderness. God is going to say to Moses, almost word for word, what Jethro told him back in Exodus. And he didn't do. Look what he says. The Lord says to Moses, I can't believe you talked to me like that. No, Moses, Moses, all right, you're burned out. Gather to me 70 men, the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people, and the officers who are over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I'm going to come down, I'm going to talk to all of you there. And I'm going to take some of the spirit, spirit of depression, spirit of the burden, spirit of responsibility that's weighing on you, and I'm going to put it upon you, and I'm going to put it upon them. We're going to spread out the weight. We're going to have some margin, we're going to have some apprenticeships, we're going to have some distribution of responsibilities, and they will bear the burden of the people with you. And you will not bear it alone. Right now, what's causing you to be ungrateful is because you think it's all up to you. And it's hard to be grateful when you're burned out. So we need to put some systems in place so it's not all on you. And what a gracious way to respond. And that's why you see, it's okay to bring your concerns to God. However Moses brought his concerns, God's response is totally different from the people. So Moses seemed to genuinely be pouring out his heart saying, God, I need some help here. And God responded. Second thing he gives some advice, and I love this part. It's one of my favorite passages of the Bible. It's so hard to hear the rumble of the grumble as the cancer is spreading through you that God has to put it right in your face sometimes, right? 
Because your spouse has mentioned to you or your boss has mentioned to you, hey, you could be a little more positive, and you're like, I don't complain. I just, I'm a truth teller. Well, you're negative. Well, no, I'm not. I just tell it how it is. Well, it sounds negative to all of us. Well, people need to get over it. Well, we all need to get over it or you need to change. It is really hard to hear the rumble of the grumble when you're doing it. So God is going to have to make it crystal clear that they can see the cancer that's spreading. And I love the story. In fact, when I was in high school, I, I was reading this in, in my Bible, and I wrote, I drew, I drew a picture of a quail on the side of the Bible. I still remember it. And it says, quail hail. That's what I call this passage. God is going to put grumbling right in their face. Moses said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and tomorrow you're going to eat meat. Oh, good. We are going to, we're going to eat meat. You have wept in the hearing of the Lord. That's not good. You've said, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Mm-mm. Therefore, you tell the people, Moses, that the Lord is going to give you meat and you shall eat. <gasps> that sounds great. And you shall eat. Oh, not just one day. Oh, not just two days. Oh, not just five days, not just 10 days, not just 20 days. You're going to eat that meat for an entire month until that meat comes out your nostrils. It's going to become loathsome to you. And what even happens today is there will be a, um, a wind that comes over the Mediterranean. It will catch a flock of, of quail or, or uh, birds that are flying through. It'll actually push them into the wilderness section. So apparently that happens that enough birds get th- pushed over into the wilderness that a million or two million people will be able to eat quail for 30 days. And day four, oh, I thought I really wanted meat. I don't really want any more meat. Eat meat! One more day! Oh, it's not day 15. Meat! Eat the meat! Eat it! Just eat the meat! Eat, 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 eat. Oh, day 30. Why did we complain? The meat is so loathsome. So God puts this like right in their face. You are grumblers. I want you to remember this lesson. One more lap. Day two. One more lap. Day 10. Day 20. Day 30. Have we got it yet? I want you to trust me and stop grumbling. Now he's told Moses to do this, but he hasn't told Moses how he's going to do it yet. So Moses is like, you want me to provide enough food? I thought it was bad when I need to give him food for one day. You're telling me I need to tell them they're going to eat meat for 30 days? He goes into depression again. Kill me now, he says. I can't do this. And this is our third way to deal with the cancer. God says, when you grumble, it's because you don't trust that God has the power to use this circumstance to his glory. You have shrunken God's arms. I love this analogy he uses. Moses said, the people whom I have among you are 600,000 men on foot. And yet they have said, oh, so Moses says, and yet you have told me. Have you done the math here, God? I will give them meat, and they will eat it for a whole month. I don't have the resources for this, Moses says. And the Lord says to Moses, Have my hands become shortened to Moses? Did somebody disarm me, and I'm not aware of it? Do you think me providing meat for 30 days to 500,000, 600,000 men or 2 million people, do you think somehow my arms have been shortened? No, Lord. All right, well, then let's get to the heart of why you're grumbling. When we grumble, it's because we've shortened God's arms. We've disarmed God. Has the Lord's arms been shortened? Now you shall see 
whether what I say will happen to you or not. And it does. At the heart of grumbling is not trusting God, not trusting his power, not trusting his provision, and not articulating that out loud to God and to the people around us. So how do we deal with the rumble of the grumble? What does that look like for you and I? It means we have to smother it with gratitude. The only way to deal with the rumble of the grumble that we become deaf to is to smother it with the attitude of gratitude. Every day, God, what does it look like for me when I'm going through my wilderness experience and my numbers in my journey? Of all things I could focus on, God, how do I smother the rumble of the grumble in my heart with an attitude of gratitude? God, what have I not thought to to thank you for? That's been going well. It's not going well, but I'm trusting you're going to use it. See, just to hear the rumble of the grumble, you have to smother it with an attitude of gratitude. So think about our four metaphors we used here. What does it look like for you to smother the rumble of the grumble in your life? Maybe you need to send it. Send it with daily prayers. Send it with a text. Open your mouth and say more encouraging things to the people around you that you work with or work for. you got to send it. Maybe you need to smother it. There's a fire going on inside you, and before God does a control burn, it's going to get painful. Why don't we smother that thing with gratitude now? Maybe you need to smell it. People around you have been saying, you stink. Like, I don't stink. You just smell badly. No, no you stink. God, sensitize me to catch myself grumbling and complaining, to smell what's in my heart. And the same thing with the cancer. Do I see it? Do I see how what I'm doing in my attitude is affecting people around me, my friendships, my family? And just as Jesus was our daily bread, he's our ultimate example. Because on the night he was betrayed, what does he do? He takes the cup and he takes the bread. Both of which he knows and has predicted represent that he's about to be slaughtered and crucified and scourged and broken. And knowing all of that, standing before all of his disciples, what is the first thing he does with the bread in his hand? He gives thanks. Well, if I knew what was coming up for the next 24 hours, I would, I, I would maybe ask for wisdom. I might ask for courage. I might ask for an escape. But he gave thanks. I don't know what your next 24 hours or 48 hours holds. But I know that Jesus wants to be your daily bread and give you the kind of fortitude and the kind of attitude that you can say thanks. Even if the scourging post is just outside the door. And an old rugged cross is just up the hill. And when Jesus was crucified, you know what came out of him? This is unbelievable spirit of forgiveness to forgive his enemies. And when I grow weak of trying to fake it or willpower my way into gratitude, it comes back to trusting what he's done and who he is in me. Let's pray. Father, 
we do pray and hope and wish for a lot of things. Yeah, we hope for big games and big wins today. We hope for big healing in marriages. We ask for healing of those who are sick. But God, we say thanks for freeing us, for creating us, for dying for us, for sustaining us, for loving us, for disciplining us, for never giving up on us. Help us to pass the test by trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.